are listening to Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show about books, people who read, and how reading at its very best is a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. There is the old philosophical question. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Likewise, if you read a book and don't discuss it, have you enjoyed all the perks of being a book lover? I'm your host, Amy. I've been a member of numerous book clubs over the last 25 years and started quite a few. I love asking people what they're reading so that they'll ask me the same. I'm a vintage bookseller, a traveler wannabe, and a fanatic about dogs. And I'm your host, Carrie. I'm an English teacher, a freelance writer, a blogger, and the person whose Instagram feed features more photos of my cats than my kids. Each week, we will talk with a guest who shares the love of reading, how they impart that passion, and what books really catch them on fire. We will also tell you about our literary lives, what books are on our nightstands, and other bookish fun. Welcome. If you enjoy our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to all your book-loving friends. It's October, it finally feels like fall, and it's time for everything creepy, scary, spooky, and things that go bump in the night. And if you're a local, it means it's time to book your theater tickets for Dracula, which is performed every fall season by the Actors Theater of Louisville. Actors Theater is one of the top regional theater companies in the nation. It's won Tony Awards, and many notable performers have graced its stage, including Julianne Moore, John Totoro, Kevin Bacon, and Kathy Bates, to name just a few. Its Humana Festival of New American Plays, which takes place every spring, is internationally known, and Newsweek once called it a miniature Cannes Film Festival for theater. Crowd favorites like Dracula and A Christmas Carol make this theater company beloved in the city. Today's guest, Hannah Ray Montgomery, is Actor Theater's dramaturg. Don't know what a dramaturg is? Neither did we until we talked with Hannah Ray. A dramaturg is basically a literary editor on the staff of a theater who helps the directors interpret and research texts for their productions. She tells us what is new and fresh about the roles for women in this year's Dracula, why people come to see it year after year, and how Bram Stoker's book differs from the play adaptation. It's close to Halloween, and time to talk literature's favorite vampire. Amy and I have gone on another little field trip, which is always fun. So we are here today at the administrative offices of Actors Theater of Louisville, and we are here with Hannah Ray Montgomery, who is Actors Dramaturg. So she is going to tell us all about actors, especially their production of Dracula. So welcome, Hannah Ray. Hi, it's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a part of Actors Theater. Uh, sure. So again, my name is Hannah Ray Montgomery. Uh, I'm the resident dramaturg in the literary department here. Um, I've been with Actors for, I can't believe I'm saying this, nine seasons now. Um, so I started here in November of 2011. And I came here from the East Coast, actually. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and then I studied dramaturgy in grad school at Yale School of Drama out in Connecticut, um, and then started my first professional job out of school here at Actors Theater back in 2011. So they, they took a chance on me, and apparently it turned out well. So I've been here ever since, uh, and working here is what brought me to Louisville. So tell us, what is a dramaturg? What, what does that mean? What do you do? Yeah, that, that is a great question. It's it's really interesting role because um, it tends to really, really change from process to process. We wear a lot of different hats depending on the needs of an individual rehearsal room or creative team or project. But for a play like Dracula, a lot of it involves sort of being what I like to call an audience before the audience, 
which means we're a person that has sort of been in the room a lot with the director, with the actors, designers, in conversations about the creative vision of the production team. But then we kind of go away for a while while they're staging and then come back in trying to sort of put ourselves in the place of an audience member who's coming to the play with new eyes and sort of sitting there and thinking, you know, what questions would I have if I didn't already know this material? Are there moments where I feel like perhaps the vision isn't being communicated as clearly as it should be? And sort of what thoughts and questions can I offer the director and the team to help open up the world of the play for an audience? And so that's a really big part of what we do, just trying to make sure everything is reading as clearly and legibly to theater goers um, as it possibly can. We're just sort of that, that neutral objective eye for the team. And then we also do a lot of work creating like audience engagement materials and contextual materials around the production. The analogy I like to use is sort of when you go to a museum and there are those plaques that hang beside the paintings that give you a little bit of background on what you're looking at and who the artist is. You know, we'll write profiles on playwrights, we'll write program notes about the history of a play, make lobby displays that sort of help immerse viewers into the world of the play. Just anything we can do to help make uh, the art more palatable and more accessible to folks is what we're here for. So I'm curious, so you've been, this is your ninth season. It is. So does that mean that you have been a part of Dracula and that performance for nine seasons? So Dracula actually typically, at least in my time here, has not always had an active dramaturg on the project. Um, We will support the rehearsal in various ways. You know, we're the folks who print all of the scripts for everything in the building and sort of handle script upkeep and maintenance. We go through most of the paper um, in the Actors Theater admin buildings. And so typically in the past, the role has sort of been more just like making sure the lobby display is in good shape and making scripts and things like that. And then last year, when we brought a, a new director on board who wanted to take a look back at the script, I was asked to then partner with him on sort of delving into the text. And so that was the first year, at least since I've been here, that Dracula had an official dramaturg because that script process was a lot more hands-on and intensive as far as like making cuts and changing some words and streamlining action. And because, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, because the director was interested in reimagining how some of the characters are portrayed, I think he was really eager to have another eye on that and on what felt like it was working. And I know nothing about any of this. So (laughs) all these questions, they're swirling around in my head. So when you have a script, like, do you have to go back to the original text of Dracula? Or do you pretty much focus and use the script that you have and kind of tweak that? I guess, how much going back do you have Mm -hmm. to do? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Um, So the adaptation of Dracula that we've been running at Actors Theatre, so we run uh, William McNulty's published adaptation of Dracula, and we have been running that since 2007. And we had been doing a prior uh, version of Dracula before that. So we've actually been doing some form of Dracula for 25 plus years at this point, which is the longest running production of Dracula consecutively in the country, I believe. Really? Um, which is pretty cool. That's, that's Louisville pretty cool. Their <laughs> but it's interesting because William McNulty's adaptation is an adaptation of an adaptation. Mm. So Hamilton Dean and John L. Balderson in the 1920s um, did the original sort of stage adaptation of Dracula, and it was done in this very sort of melodramatic style that was popular at the time. 
Um, the initial Broadway production of it starred Bella Lugosi as Dracula, which is pretty cool. Um, and so William McNulty's adaptation is actually sort of a version of that, kind of pulling a lot of the same characters, follows the same story arc, um, same kind of character relationships, etc. So it's interesting that we actually have this other adaptation in between what we're doing and the novel, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so in looking at the script for this, because we are still doing Bill McNulty's adaptation and he is credited program as the author and as the original director of this production, when we went back in to sort of look at some of the language and some of the character portrayals, we are still working with his script as opposed to going back to the novel. But I actually did reread the novel this spring just out of curiosity of sort of how close or not is what we're doing to that original material and what can we learn from Bram Stoker's vision. So I would say that factored into the conversations this year, but sort of more indirectly, if that makes sense. So I'm wondering if you just read Dracula, how did it compare and what new are you bringing to it? Yeah, it's re- it's really interesting because in re- I had read Dracula as a child, but I had not reread it as an adult. And in sort of looking back at it, I think this, comparing the story arcs is really interesting because in our production, Van Helsing shows up. I'm going to throw some spoilers out there. <laughs> Van Helsing shows up, and Van Helsing already has seems to have a pretty good idea of what is happening to Lucy, who is sort of ill and languishing because, of course, Dracula is feeding upon her every night and her best friend Mina has just been killed, and we later find out has become a vampire because of Dracula's attentions. And so most of the sort of the initial plot of our version of Dracula is Van Helsing sharing that knowledge with Dr. Seward and with Lucy and with the other folks in the house, and then them sort of mobilizing to go after Dracula. And there is sort of some surprise and discovery in evidence that confirms, okay, like these suspicions are correct, my hypothesis was right, this Count Dracula is in fact not only a vampire, but like the infamous historical vampire, you know, who's been around for 500 years, and that is a surprise in the play. But it's interesting because in the novel, it takes much, much, much longer for them to even figure out that vampirism is what is going on. And actually a huge portion, like I want to say, I don't know, 60% of the novel is just them trying to unravel this mystery of what is this mysterious illness, what is happening, okay, we think we're dealing with the occult, but is it vampires? It takes them even longer to sort of figure out that it's Dracula. And ironically, we kind of already know that, because in in the novel it actually starts, instead of with Van Helsing and those folks in England, in the novel it starts with Jonathan Harker in Transylvania, and we actually see him discovering what's going on and getting preyed upon by Dracula. And then he later shows up in England with amnesia. And so there's kind of this wonderful dramatic irony in the fact that like we, as the reader, sort of know a little bit more about what's going on than the characters do in the book, which I feel like is, is kind of a difference between the book and the play, just in the sense of like what is being discovered and revealed and like how much time is spent on that. And, and that's, that's the thing. I think that as an audience, you have to... And I fall into it, too. Like, I read a book, and then if I see a play about the book, in my head, and I do this with movies, too, a little bit, but I sort of think, (laughs) I am going to see exactly what was in the book, and that is not always the case. But you only have a certain amount of time that you can have your audience. And also, it being a play, you know, the stage version of Dracula just literally takes place on such a more compressed timeline as far as like how long the story is going for, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't remember exactly, but the book I think spans 
a period of months, if not a year or two. And so our Dracula, everything's just much more compressed and happens, you know, one thing after another. So tell me a little bit about, and and we've talked about this a little bit, about adaptation. What is the difference, and is there a difference between, because I don't fully understand, if you modernize a text, sort of bring it up to 2019, is that different from adapting a text? Can you explain that? Sure. So I think of, I mean, I don't know that there's one sort of hard you know, right way to say it. But the the way I think about it is that adaptation is about bringing a story from one storytelling medium into another. So for example, if you take a book and take that story and make it into a movie, or you take a book and make that story into a play, that's sort of how I think of adaptation. Um, And so with that, I think changing the time period or something about the vision or putting, layering a concept on it can be a piece of that. But you could also just do a straight adaptation for example, if you wanted to take, I don't know, Huckleberry Finn and just make a very faithful film of Huckleberry Finn that follows, you know, all of Mark Twain's plot points, takes place in that time period, very faithful to the story, etc., you know, you could do that and that still counts as adaptation. I think there is a lot of interest just generally in modernizing and updating classic texts and classic material. Um, whether it's transposing it from one medium to another or even just looking back at classic plays and sort of reimagining those for a modern audience. And something I really love about that, I mean, I'm particularly a fan of seeing modern versions of Shakespeare or new versions of Shakespeare. Speaking of which, just to plug, um, we're doing a next up in our season, a wonderful production that Fiasco Theatre Company is bringing in of Measure for Measure by Shakespeare. And I think that'll be a really cool opportunity to see this provocative play on stage um, with a company sort of bringing their new creative twists and creative vision to it. But what, what I really love about that and about that impulse is I actually think, you know, I know it can be a controversial thing to update a classic text. And there are some folks, you know, that, will, that feel stodgy about it or that feel like, oh, they're diluting the purity of this thing. But something I love about it is I actually think seeing a modern production of a classic text can sort of remind us what is universal about it or sort of remind us what has the thematic resonance within it that makes it classic in the first place. Like there's a reason that certain stories endure and echo across multiple generations. And I think it's because, you know, this is 2019 and Shakespeare was writing centuries ago now, but we can still see ourselves in some of those stories and those characters and the things they're speaking about and thinking about you know, Shakespeare just being one example. One of the things I think about, too, is that because I sometimes fall into a trap where I think, oh, I like it. You know, like if yeah. there's a book that I especially love, then I think, oh, I want to see that book. But the thing is, if if you never change it, I mean, part of the conversation that you can have with a text and with other people is if you see a production that's different, it gives you something additional to talk about related to the text. Whereas if it never changes, if the play is the exact same as the book, what are you going to talk about? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it does give you fresh eyes to see, as you said, either something that is true about that text, no matter what form you see it in. But also, I mean, sometimes the best conversations are when there's sort of controversy and when people, you know, are like, oh, I didn't like that, but I like that part of what they did. Mm-hmm. So um, I always think it's interesting, too, when you see an adaptation and they have changed 
the thing that they're emphasizing. So it's all the same text, but maybe something that was sort of a minor thing in the book, they've emphasized and it becomes a, a, a bigger, more important issue mm -hmm. in that play. And I always think that that's, mm -hmm. that's interesting. So it's not actually changing anything. It's just magnifying something that's already there. Yeah. So I've heard you say that a performance of Dracula is different every single year, even though it might it's the basic same play. So what are some things that, that change each year that make it a new performance? I mean, I think every year, even sort of before last year when we, when we looked back again at the script and at some of the characters, um, so William McNulty, who is the adapter of this version, up until last year had directed it also for a number of years. And of course, being the writer and the director, I know in that room every year they were already sort of finding new things, um, new bits of stage business that they wanted to add. There are often sort of new production elements that get added in every year. There are a lot of special effects in the show, a lot of blood effects, pyrotechnics, all kinds of fun things like that. And those often get tweaked a little bit in cool ways from year to year. With bringing on a new director for the production last year, uh, Drew Frazier, we had a lot of conversations, this is a big change, about the character of Lucy. Of course, the, the version of Lucy that we had been seeing on stage in the adaptation was very similar to the Lucy that we meet in the novel. You know, she's sort of a, she's like a beautiful, virtuous, kind of fragile, ingenue type character um, who needs to be protected and look af looked after and cured by all of these strong men who want to like plunge into her rescue. Um, and we were interested in re-examining, you know, what is the Lucy for a 2018-2019 audience and how can we give that character a little bit more agency in her journey and in what's happening to her. I mean, the story is just inherently about this very powerful man preying on a young woman and you can't really change that or disrupt that dynamic without changing the entire story, which we weren't really looking to do at this point, but we looked for ways textually, but also sort of in her stage blocking and line delivery and the fight sequences in particular, where she could stand up for herself a little bit more. What is the more, you know, working with this text, what is the more empowered version of Lucy that we can see on stage? And we had brought on a new fight choreographer, Jake Gwynn, last year as well, and he crafted a lot of wonderful moments. Um, I don't know if I can say this, but for her to really kick ass. You can um, say that. <laughs> that's, that's actually like one of the ways that he has described it. He's going to kick ass. Um, and so for her to really take an active role in that way. And then another sort of exciting change in, this, in that vein that we brought this year is that the role of Abraham Van Helsing, sort of the, the Dutch professor who comes in and is very schooled in the occult, uh, we cast that role this year as a woman. And so Abram Van Helsing became Anna Van Helsing, which was a really fun change because suddenly it's a female character coming in and leading the fight against Dracula and is the one who's sort of armed with all of this knowledge about how to defeat him. And so watching the two of them square off is really exciting and dynamic. And then seeing this alliance between women that happens when Van Helsing and Lucy sort of band together and again, there were a lot of new enhancements to the action and the fight choreography this year, where we really see them taking on Dracula and the undead together. And that was, that was a really fun change that I think everyone feels really proud of. I guess, like in my head, is swirling the idea of copyright or property, you know, intellectual property. So when you're producing 
and performing an adaptation, how much freedom do you have yeah. to kind of change things up before it then be- is no longer really an adaptation and it's sort of like mm-hmm. your own thing? I mean, when we sort of looked back at the script last year, all of the changes that we suggested or were interested in making then had to be run back by Bill, who was the original adapter. And because we've had a, a good working relationship with him for a number of years, he used to be part of our resident company back when we had that, you know, we were able to just go straight to the author in that way. And he actually had to approve okay. every change that we ended up making. So we definitely don't have the freedom because he's credited as the author to just change anything. This year we had a little bit more latitude because Bill actually gave us carte blanche to make the changes that we needed to make for the production. And so we were sort of able to go in and, and do a few more sort of re-examinations of moments in the text. But again, all of that was sort of a very delicate thing of having to make sure that the playwright had approval. And if we were just a, another producing institution who didn't have that direct playwright relationship, my understanding of the process is that any changes we would want to make would have to go through play scripts, um, which is the licensor of the script and the publisher of the script. Okay. So there are definitely, copyright is always a thing that we have to navigate. Okay. Are there any returning actors that have been in it in the past? Uh, there are. Um, so Neil Robertson, who is a, a local actor and Louisville favorite, is back this year as Renfield. Oh, that's my favorite. <laughs> He's good and creepy. <laughs> Everyone loves Renfield. That role has always been very popular. I'm told there's like an I Heart Renfield fan club. Really? Facebook, like full of middle school girls. <laughs> so legend has it. Uh, and Santino Craven is back this year as Dracula. He was also our Dracula last year and is magnificently creepy and awesome. So I'm wondering how long does it take you all to prepare for each year's performance season of Dracula? Like when do you start thinking about it? When do you start practicing is not the word. Um, rehearsing. rehearsing. <laughs> when do you start practicing rehearsing? Practicing is the word. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's a hard question to answer but in a way because I feel like there's not necessarily like a hard start and end date. I mean I feel like because we're producing every season. There's sort of a cyclical nature to the work where we're always sort of looking ahead and planning the next season as we're in the current season, if that makes sense. So I would say sort of artistically, we're already thinking about next year's Dracula and and what that looks like. And I know the production team, I'm not sure exactly when they start meeting and working on the next year's iteration, but I want to say it's in the spring, Mm -hmm. kind of usually right after we close out the Humana Festival in early April or mid-April, We'll often start turning focus to planning for next year's season and sort of getting stuff ready to go. And so I know design conversations are often already underway. You know, work on sets and costumes often goes on throughout the summer. Drew, the director, and I were working on the script throughout last summer and then again through this summer. And then we typically start rehearsing about a month or so out, give or take. Um, So they started rehearsing in early August for an early September opening. So what do you think it is about Dracula that just keeps people wanting to see it again and again and again? You, you said this production, Actors Theater, has been doing this since 1971. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm. So what do you think it is about Dracula that, that makes people want to come back? 
I mean, I think, you know, based in, in my years living in Louisville, something I really noticed right away when I moved here as a, as a new person to town is Louisville seems to love our horror. <laughs> so I think, you know, like the blood, the jump scares, the special effects, the spectacle of it is just really fun and engaging. I mean, I think there's something to like the power of tradition too. And I've noticed just in people I've met, you know, or I'll introduce myself and say, oh, I work at Actors Theater. And immediately people love to talk about and share their stories of coming to see Dracula over and over throughout the years. And I think there's something really cool about having this production that's been running so long that people have grown up with it. Mm. I have friends who, you know, say, oh, I first saw Dracula when I was in middle school, and now they're coming back year after year as an adult. Some of them are starting to bring their kids. And I think that's a really cool thing. I think people like that sense of familiarity, that feeling of ownership over something. And then also because it is live theater, it's like you get all the perks of watching your favorite movie over and over, <laughs> but because it's live theater, there's always new things too, and it's always changing. And I think that quality is really exciting. Like you get to re-experience something that you love, but in a new way every year. And also, I mean, it just seems like z- vampires are really in the zeitgeist right now. They're very like, cool. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you get, you know, you get sort of horror and sex and intrigue and power and all of the things. I mean, what's not to like? <laughs> so a few years ago, I brought my kids to uh, Actors Theater did a, um, for the cultural pass, with the Louisville Free Public Library, and we came and got to experience, it was kind of like a behind-the-scenes tour of Actors Theater, and so, I mean, we got to go, like, underneath the stage, and we got to see where, I think this was correct, where Dracula either comes down from the stage or pops back up through the stage, and it was so fascinating for me as an adult. My boys were very little, and they're still I don't know if it would be appropriate for them. So maybe let's talk a little bit about, because I know Actors is doing behind-the-scenes thing for Dracula. What's the age range that you think would be appropriate for this play? So I would say officially we're saying 10 and up for the production. And as for the event that you mentioned, um, just to give that a shout-out for a minute, it's called Inside the Coffin. It'll be happening Saturday, October 26th at 11 a.m., Um, in the Bingham Theater where Dracula's performed. And yeah, it's a really fun event. You get to go backstage. I believe they do demonstrations on some of the special effects and how some of that stuff works. So you really get to see some of the the tricks of the trade, so to speak. I'm totally doing that. (laughs) (laughs) So I've seen the play probably four or five times. I've lived in Louisville 13 or 14 years. We go every couple of years. But I'm always amazed on how really scary it is. I've been to quite a few plays, you know, around the country. I don't think I've ever been to a play that I thought was as scary as Dracula. And some of the special effects, like what you're talking about, I think can contribute to that. I'm sure some of the the writing as well. (laughs) But um, I remember the very first time we went, and this was probably 10 years ago, and I went on a field trip with my middle schooler at the time, and I don't know how you all do that, but it felt like there was a rat running underneath (laughs) my leg, and it was the creepiest thing ever. (laughs) So I do have one more question for you. Ah. Did you come to this profession from the acting end or from the literature end? 
Uh, both, both? actually. <laughs> um, so in college, I was an English and theater arts double major, and I came from, I was an actor at the time, and, you know, envisioned a life where I would go on to try to be a performer, and that was one thing I was interested in, but I also really loved reading and writing and research. Um, I was a creative writer, but I also loved writing about books um, and writing about literature, and I discovered dramaturgy my junior year of undergrad, and what I really loved about it was that it merged those two interests into kind of one thing. So it was, you know, you still get to be part of a live theater-making process and contribute creatively to something um, and work with artists, but you also get to go off and do all of that reading and all of that research and all that text analysis and contribute that to a process. So once I found those two things and the fact that they could exist together in that way, that was just it for me, and I've been on that track ever since. That's super cool. I mean, like, we were ju- we just had a conversation with a professor from Bellarmine University about, you know, people tend to think, well, if you get an English, you know, if you, if you like English, what are you going to do? You're going to be a teacher, you're going to be a librarian, or you're going to be a writer. But, you know, it's nice to know that mm-hmm. there are lots of things that you can do with English that people don't talk about. So give us the dates for when Dracula is playing. So it opened on September 6th, so it is okay. already up and running. Um, it's one of our longest-running productions we do. It has 70 performances, oh which is a lot. And it closes this year on Halloween, so on okay. October 31st. Does the Halloween performance, I bet that, is that hard to get tickets for? I mean, does that sell out? Like, is that one of the first dates to sell out? We usually have a Halloween party that happens yeah. in the lobbies, and yeah, it's a yeah. whole it's a whole thing. It's a thing. It's, not it's a vibe. Now, but sell it out. I might have to buy tickets for that night. <laughs> Get them soon. Get them soon. And and tell us again, when is the behind the scenes? Um, so the behind the scenes event is Saturday, October 26th. So that's just a few days before closing. And also I should have mentioned um, tickets for that are $15 and you can buy them on our website. Okay. Well, this has been great. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. here at Actors Theatre with Hannah Ray Montgomery, and we're now going to talk about what we've been reading lately. So, Carrie, what you got on your nightstand? <laughs> so, I read a short story that you actually brought to my attention, Amy. Uh, it is called A Witch's Guide to Escape, A Practical Compendium of Portal Fantasies. And this was written by Alex Harrow. And Alex is from Kentucky, Berea, I think. And this short story won the Nebula Award, and it won the Hugo Award. So this is like hot stuff. I mean, yeah. it's good. Yes, the Nebula and Hugo are the. It's the most important award you can win if you're a science fiction or fantasy writer. And she won it, I think, on her first try. And she has a new debut novel out, which we'll talk about in a later episode, probably, but yeah. Yeah, so I read this. Uh, I found it, it was uh, published in Apex Magazine, so I just Googled Alex Harrow short story and uh, found this story, and it blew my mind. It was so good. It's a little bit hard, like at first you start reading it and you're not sure what's going on, but I guess that's a good thing. You realize that that a librarian is telling this story and so it starts and it's got a book listed 
with the Dewey Decimal number, and then you've got the story. So it, there's this boy who keeps coming into the library, and you learn that the librarians are not, well, they're not what we think librarians are. They are witches. Mm-hmm. And they aren't the kind of witches that say, that book was dead two weeks ago. Not those kind of witches. <laughs> they're the kind of witches that know what a reader needs. And so they can sense what a reader needs, especially if the reader doesn't know what they need. So it is a wonderful, magical story. And I won't tell you too much because it is a short story. You should read it and you should give it to every kid or person you know who loves fantasy and sci-fi because it was great. So it would be appropriate for kids to read? Well... Hmm. Okay. Let, let me let me modify that. Teenagers, pro, you know, here's the thing. I, I have gotten to the point with my with my kids that there are a lot of things that, as an adult, I can go probably that's probably not totally appropriate for them. But honestly, it's going to go over their head. They're not going to get it that part. So, but they will get the magical the the plot of it and the fact that reading can allow you to escape they will get that part of the story and the other part that i might have a little bit of reserve about is going to go completely over their heads so do you think people who are huge harry potter fans who are looking for something to kind of fill a little void Mm -hmm. would it fit that i think if you are an open-minded reader if you're the type of person who won't read Harry Potter because you think it's promoting witchcraft in children, I think you should stay away from this story. <laughs> but if you are the type of person who loves science fiction and fantasy and you're open-minded and you grasp and love the possibility that there could be magic in the world, then I think you're going to love the story. How's that? That's pretty good. Okay. (laughs) Hannah Ray, would you tell us what you've been reading? Is Uh, it Dracula? (laughs) (laughs) Back in the spring, it was Dracula. Um, I did read my first Stephen King novel this summer. Which one? Um, I read The Dead Zone. I've not read that one. I believe it's one of the earlier ones. I'm it not is. super it is. familiar with the... That's the one of his early ones, and I haven't Stephen read that King one. Stephen King lexicon. Okay, but. so I have to ask this. So up until recently, I had never read a Stephen King book. So was there a reason why you hadn't, like, gotten into Stephen King? I'm just curious. No, it's interesting because I, I wouldn't say that I didn't like horror. I was more sort of, I think, for most of my life, have just been kind of quietly indifferent to it. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm opposed, or I don't want to read this, or I don't want to go see a horror movie. I just, it wasn't really where I gravitated. And then in the past year, uh, I had a roommate, actually, who was very, very into horror cinema as a genre and started exposing me to a lot of things. And she was reading, you know, I wish I could remember right now, but she was reading a very large Stephen King novel that she kept by her bed throughout the year. And she kept saying, you know, I think you'd really like this. It's really a page turner. Um, So she sort of encouraged me to start pursuing it. And I actually, you know, I went to see a horror movie by myself back in June, which was a big step for me. Really enjoyed myself. And it was interesting because what really struck me about The Dead Zone, it was a lot less horror than I was expecting and a lot more just kind of 
I wouldn't even say psychological thriller, but like psychological interrogation. It's about a guy who um, is in a terrible car accident and goes into a coma for something like four years. And when he wakes up, he has these kind of psychic abilities. So he can sort of touch someone and see flashes of things or get these deep feelings about the future. And what was interesting interesting in reading it is it's set in the 70s and takes place in the 70s, and there's actually a lot of political commentary about what was going on at the time embedded into the story. But it really felt eerily relevant to the Trump era. Um, it's sort of the antagonist in the story is this local politician, I think in New Hampshire, um, who sort of runs on this platform of populism and I'm a, a man of the people and I'm not elitist and he has this kind of gang of thugs that follows him around and he, you know, everyone kind of writes him off like he's not a serious politician, what is this new party that he's made up, no one's going to vote for him, he's a clown and he gains traction, gets to a point where it looks like he's going to enter the presidential race and so sort of the main character of the dead zone who has these psychic flashes about this guy his sort of M.O. becomes, how can I stop this guy? How can I prevent this from happening? And that's sort of like the protagonist-antagonist relationship in the story. But there are so many sentences just about the politics of the time that really resonated with me as a millennial reader today, and I was very just kind of surprised and delighted by that. Very cool. Yeah, I think I think people who've never read any Stephen King assume that all of his works are horror, and they're not. Uh, you know, he does have quite a few horror, but he also has some that are uh, more like a mystery thriller. He's got collections of short stories, some that are sci-fi. There's a book that he wrote that I know I, I mentioned to Carrie I thought she should read, and she did, called On Writing. That's all about his writing process. And it's I really used good. it with my students, even. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good about his whole writing process and, and how to go about becoming becoming a writer. So that's great. Yeah, I'm about to start my next one. I just bought a big copy of It. At oh, wow. House, and it's <laughs> sitting on my nightstand. I'm planning to start it in October and sort of have it be my October reading. So I mainly read Stephen King when I was a teenager, early 20s. But I mean, I remember it very fondly. And then after that, you know, I was an English major in college, and I kind of moved on to other things. But that one was one of my favorites. It Awesome. Yeah. All right, Amy, what are you deep diving into? <laughs> well, I recently, I started it out as an audiobook, but then I kept it too long, and it had to be returned. So then I went to the book version. But I, I read Tales of the City by Armistead Maupin. And the audiobook version is narrated by Frances McDormand, who is the, she was an Academy Award winning actress. She was in Fargo. And then most recently, I think she won the Academy Award for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. So she narrates the book and she's a wonderful narrator. And some of my favorite audiobooks are narrated by actors or actresses because they really know how to do all the different characters with their voices and make them distinct. And, you know, they're, they're just trained to do delivery of the lines well. But this book, it started out actually as little serial stories in the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper and in the late 70s. And then it was published into a book in 1989. So I don't know if you know this, but Charles Dickens, most of his novels were serialized as well. They started as small little stories and they would come out, you know, once a week, once a month, something about the, like that. This is set in San Francisco in the 1970s. And most of the characters in this book... They are residents of, or they're connected to in some way, an apartment building, 28 Barbary Lane. And that's, a lot of people just know that address. I mean, 
if you've ever heard of this book. And the ad for the apartment says, you'll know if it's right for you. <laughs> so this book is very soap opera-esque. Each chapter, it's only a couple pages, and it it's literally like watching a TV series. Like each chapter is sort of like what you would think of as, would be a scene in a, in a TV show. There's an interesting mix of characters. There's Mary Ann, who's from the wholesome Midwest, who who vacations there and decides to stay. And Michael, who's a young gay man from Florida who still hasn't come out to his parents. And then he has a, a roommate named Mona. And then there's Brian, who's this oversexed guy who's kind of a jerk. And then there's Mrs. Madrigal, who's the, the apartment building owner. And she's she has this mysterious history that we're still not sure about. Some people say that this is like a love story to San Francisco. And it does certainly describes the life there at that moment in time. You've got your gay culture, there's drugs, there's the country club lifestyle for the more wealthy who live in the suburbs. All the characters are likable and the tone is very light to it. It's definitely escapist, fun reading. It's a little tawdry without being too graphic. It's a little heartwarming. It's a little silly at times. There are nine novels in this series, so if you read the first one and you like it, you can just keep on I'm going with it. And there's even a couple novels that he wrote that are spinoffs that are just based on one character um, that was in, in this. There have been several TV adaptations. The most well-known was in the late 90s, and it starred Laura Linney and Olympia Dukakis. And they've updated that. They've done a reboot with those same actresses that's on Netflix currently. And there was also a radio version that was on the BBC. So I wouldn't say this is great literature at all, but it certainly it was fun. And like I said, it's a it's a kind of escapist and just a fun read. So I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned Dickens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, every once in a while I teach Great Expectations. And what I notice, because it's serialized, is the end of chapters is always a cliffhanger. So are the ends of the chapters in that book sort of like cliffhangers? Yeah, kind of. There's definitely okay. a question that's left sort of unanswered. But I mean, really, each chapter is only like two or three pages. So it literally is a page turner where you're like, well, that was only like two pages, so I'm going to read. I'm going to read the next chat. I'm just going to keep on going. And right. yeah, it was like that. Cool. So. Well, when we come back, we will be asking Hannah Ray Montgomery her top five. We are back at Actors Theater with Hannah Ray Montgomery, and we are going to be asking her. A top five. Hannah Ray, if you were going to adapt a play, what is the top one you'd adapt and how would you do it? Yeah, so I think if I were going to adapt something, um, there's actually a novel that I started adapting for the stage in grad school and then it was kind of one of those projects that kind of fell on the shelf when I got this job. But I had started an adaptation of the novel The Savage Detectives by Roberto Bolaño, which is a book that I really, really love and is close to my heart. I know there has since been an adaptation of 2666 for the stage in Chicago, which is his other sort of famous epic novel. But to my knowledge, no one has done The Savage Detectives yet. And I think it, it has a lot of really cool potential for the stage because the story is just a really fascinating genre collage. Um, It's told from a lot of different perspectives. It's sort of structured in three parts, and in the second part we hear from over 40 different voices. Oh, my gosh. Um, So I think it just, in the way that time moves in the novel, in the sort of abstract, fluid, nonlinear way, the sort of collage of voices and tones, those are sort of qualities that I feel like could lend themselves really well to a theatrical adaptation. 
And I'll just summarize the story really quickly. I mean, it's sort of about this group of poets in Chile who call themselves the visceral realists, and they're kind of like a Chilean beat generation is probably the quickest way to describe them. So I'm also just really interested in, in that perspective as well, and sort of what it looks like as artists to create your own mythology, I think is a theme that mm. would resonate on stage mm. as well. What is the top theatrical performance that you've seen, either here or anywhere else? That is a really tough question. <laughs> I feel like I should have a really cool answer to this. I mean, I'll be very honest, I love musicals, which a lot of people do, but I definitely know some people you know, who turn their nose up at musicals a little bit. I love musicals. Um, I got to see Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway a couple years ago, and that was a real highlight for me because growing up I was also in A Fiddler on the Roof three times in various different roles, so I was like the person sitting there mouthing all the words, (laughs) knew all the songs by heart, so that was pretty great. I've seen so many wonderful things since I started working here at Actors, I feel I couldn't even possibly rank them. Another thing that stands out to me, which actually was done at Actors in the Humana Festival, though I did not see it in that context, was when I was in grad school at Yale in 2010, the theater ensemble, The Rude Mechanicals, who are out of Austin, Texas, toured to New Haven with a show called The Method Gun, which they had actually also done here in the Humana Festival that year. And I really, really loved that play. It was a really, really smart and audience interactive interrogation of the process of making art. And the the ensemble members played a theater ensemble who were doing a production of A Streetcar Named Desire, but only speaking the lines of the minor characters. <laughs> So telling that story through the words of all of the secondary characters. And then it's also just a really smart and funny and critical look at method acting and Stella Adler and that whole tradition. There's a lot of really virtuosic stage moments. Like there's a moment where the actors walk across the stage and they're naked and they have balloons tied to certain places and then they (laughs) pop the balloons. It's this just really stunning choreography. And it just showed me a side of theater that I had not seen before or just sort of stretch my ideas of like what theater can do and the questions it can ask. Probably one of my most favorite theatrical performances was actually here at Actors Theater. I was in college and came to see a performance of, um, it was the place called Beast on the Moon by Richard Kalinowski. And I loved that play. I mean, it was just, it just made me cry. I loved that play. And I saw it with my my friend she's been my friend since we were 14 so we went to high school together and college together and we saw it together and we're still friends and she bought me the book that had all the humana plays from that year and I don't even remember what year it was but 20 it was 25 years ago at least and I still have it and that's one of my fondest memories of theater so what is your top play that you performed in when you were an actor in high school and college and maybe even inspired you to do what you're doing now? That's really tough. Uh, I did, as I mentioned, I did a lot of musicals. I was in a quote-unquote professional children's musical theater troupe growing up. We were called the Peanut Butter Players Lunch Bunch. (laughs) Oh, cute! (laughs) And it was dinner theater, or should I say lunch theater, because we served the audiences peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that our parents had made before the show. (laughs) And it was professional because we got paid five whole dollars per show, which at the time I thought I was making bank. I had made it as an actress. Um... 
I, w- I would say probably my favorite role or the role that I found most challenging at the time was I got to play Mary Warren in The Crucible oh, wow. uh, when I was 15 in a community theater production back in Boulder. And I just really loved digging into that role. I've always really liked Arthur Miller. He's sort of one of my favorite canon playwrights. Um, and so getting to actually be in that play was really exciting for me. You are from Boulder. What is the question number four is what is the top thing you suggest people see or do when they come to Colorado? This is probably the most obvious answer, but I would say go to the mountains <laughs> if at all possible. Even if you're I mean the hiking is really, really wonderful and amazing. We have a lot of great national parks. Um, but even if that isn't your thing, I think just driving through the mountains, taking in the scenery, I remember one Christmas, my family and I went to Steamboat Springs, which is a small mountain town, and they have all of these natural hot springs. And so we did this really cool thing where, we're, where we went swimming. I mean, you don't really swim, you more just kind of hang out but like <laughs> in the hot spring. It's outside. There was a blizzard happening, so there's snow coming down, and you're there in a bathing suit in this hot spring, and you're completely warm and comfortable because the water is just so naturally heated. And it was one of the coolest experiences I think I've ever had. So I would say definitely the mountains. I'm not a ski person myself, but the skiing is fantastic. I I kind of think the outdoor culture there offers something for everyone. I've been to Colorado a couple times, so what I'll add to that is if you're driving through the mountains and you have a chance to go up to one of the tallest peaks, we we went up to the top of Mount Evans there outside of, of Denver, and you kind of drive literally like around the mountain with these there's hardly any room and you're having to pass people and it's like straight down. And once you get to a certain level, then there's no trees because it's at the frost line, I think it's called. And then it's just like moss. And you see these tiny little animals that only live up there. I forget their name. Marmots. Marmots. You see marmots (laughs) up there. And then you have to make your way back. You have to make your way back down. And it's actually kind of terrifying when you're driving it, but it's really beautiful and cool. And our last question, what is the top thing you do after wrapping up a performance at Actors Theater? So this can be wrapping up all the performances when you're done with a certain performance or just one performance when you're just tired at the end of the night. Sure. Um, I would say the top thing that I do after I'm done working on a show is I catch up on my Netflix. (laughs) So I've been actually working this fall on two productions kind of simultaneously. So I was the dramaturg for Dracula, and then I was also the dramaturg for our wonderful production of Hype Man by Idris Goodwin, which is running right now and just opened this past Friday the 13th. Um, And so basically with those two shows being open and no more rehearsals, I spent the weekend Netflix binging. (laughs) Do you have a favorite show that you like to right now that you're binging? Oh, that's really tough because I I love to sort of watch television and kind of dramaturg TV in my head. Um, (laughs) Actually, I've been watching on HBO. I finally watched the second season of Big Little Lies which I loved. There's really a lot there. Um, I also binge-watched Euphoria on HBO, which I really enjoyed. And I finally watched the third season of Stranger Things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been busy. (laughs) Yes, you have. (laughs) (laughs) What has been so great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for inviting us here to Actors Theater and, and letting us talk you up about Dracula. Yeah, absolutely. It's been so fun. Thank you. So while we are recording this, it is Banned Books Week. It probably won't be when we air it, 
But I thought it might be interesting to take a moment and just think about banned books. And so Dracula, just talked with Hannah Ray Montgomery about, was and perhaps still is on some curriculums a banned book. So what are your thoughts about I, I'm not sure if people actually want to know my thoughts, but I'll give them anyway. <laughs> um, so I'm the type of person that whatever you tell me not to do is exactly what I want to do. So anything that's on a banned book list, I'm like down with reading it, even if it's not normally something I would ever read. So I'm looking through a list right now. It is of Books that were banned, top 11 challenge books of 2018. And so a lot of these I've read. Uh, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. What else? Drama by Raina Telgemeier, which is a graphic novel that my my 12-year-old has read. The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. Uh, Captain Underpants, which... Yes, oh I, my don't, gosh. I don't, I don't know I don't the reasoning that. behind that. Let's see. Um, reason. Series was challenged because it was perceived as encouraging disruptive behavior. That's why. <laughs> it encourages. And we were just talking about Junie B. Jones books. Yes. And that they are actually uh, challenged. Well, if you're interested in looking to see uh, some books that have been banned or challenged over the years, the American Library Association has a great list. And so I was on there this morning uh, looking at the list. It was interesting to see some of what books that we would consider classics. Absolutely. That the have Great Gatsby. Been, the Great Gatsby. And that one was challenged for sexual references and as late as 2009. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, right. a long time ago. Because to, apparently people in the 1920s did not have sex. Apparently so. To Kill a Mockingbird. And that one was interesting because it was challenged by black parents uh, because of the use of the N-word. A book that my daughter's currently reading in high school right now, 1984. It was challenged for being pro-communist. Uh, Lord of the Rings for being satanic. The Call of the Wild was burned by Nazis back in the 1930s. It's a book about wolves. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not really sure. Uh, Who get back to their instinctive <laughs> being wolves. Uh, yeah. So if you, yeah, I don't I don't really understand. I'm, I'm a proponent of thinking and deciding for yourself what you think that doesn't mean you don't listen to whatever people in authority but that means that you take what they say and you think about it and you decide for yourself what you think and so I you know for myself I just think about when I was a kid my mother did not even know what I read at all and I generally let my kids choose what they want to read. Now, but I also have discussions with my kids. So we try to talk about things and look at them from different perspectives. And I play devil's advocate with my children. I mean, if they say something, I might completely agree with that. But I'm going to ask them, well, why do you think that? And what do you think other people think of that? So... Well, I'm going to throw a little bit of a wrench in that. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. (laughs) Well, just in general, I read a Washington Post uh, article in the last couple days talking about banned book week. Mm -hmm. But it was saying that we also, if, if that's the way that we feel about banned books, then we also need to feel that way about books that we do not agree with. Absolutely. So say uh, someone who writes a book championing a conspiracy theory or something that has hate speech in it 
Now, I don't think that bookstores should have them maybe, you know, front and center mm-hmm. in their store, but I feel like we have to give those books the same liberties that we want for these other books that that maybe are near and dear Absolutely. to our hearts. I agree with that. And hopefully, if you read them, you'll decide that they're stupid and they're not a good book to read because they're just not full of intelligent ideas. Right. Well, I mean, there are certain authors that, well, I'll give you an example. Somebody gave my children a book that was written by somebody that I politically very strongly disagree with. This person had written children's books about history, and I did not throw them in the garbage. My kids could read them if they wanted to. They were on the kids' shelves. I read or I should say I started to read one of the books, because they these books did not have a political bent. The person who wrote them was politically not in line with my thinking. Well, I started to read the books. I didn't like them because I, I just didn't think they were well written. I, I thought it was kind of silly. My children never got into it because it wasn't a book that they would be interested in reading. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I feel like... I am going to choose not to read books written by people who have views that I can't abide, but they still have the right to publish. They still have the right to be on the shelves. Right. So when one of my sons, I remember there was a book that he wanted to read that I thought was, for my own personal beliefs, was questionable. Mm -hmm. I think what I did was ask him then to also read this other book Mm -hmm. that I thought had a more well-rounded view of that particular subject. I don't remember whether he actually read either one of those books. I think he <laughs> might have wanted to read this book because he thought that I didn't want him to read that uh, book. Yeah, <laughs> and sometimes that's the case. And, and I do think, I mean, parents uh, can can read the book with the child. You know, if there's a book that your kid really wants to read, you can read the book, the same book as your child and then open up discussions and because again I mean even if it's your child they they have their own thoughts they have their own worldview and it may be very different from yours but part of the uh, part of the process is also teaching them how to have civil discussions about issues that you may disagree with and to think critically right absolutely about things absolutely to think it all the way through so yeah celebrating banned books week Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.